Well, it's just a joy for me to be here again today. And uh, if you remember the last time that I was here, we looked together at... um, Let me just think where we did look at. We looked at John 13, I think, the last time that I was here. And we looked a little bit at the... Um, anointing, uh, or, or we looked at Jesus washing the disciples' feet from, and and, and so I kind of committed myself to doing a little stu- study or a little series on the life of Peter. And today, what I'd like to look at is chapter twenty-six of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew twenty-six. And uh, this is really looking at what transpired over. Um, the crucifixion and particularly the, 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 the eve of the crucifixion the night before the crucifixion looking a little bit at, at, at what happened in Peter's life um, as he followed Jesus and then eventually wound up in the high priest's courtyard so let's read together from verse 31 um, then Jesus told them This very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I will never Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with his disciples to the place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him and began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell on his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away and a second time, he went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go, here comes my betrayer. 
And while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. And going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? In that hour Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted and fled. Just dropping down to verse 69. Now now Peter was sitting in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you are talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, This fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses and swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken before the rooster crows. You will disown me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now, just a prayer. Lord, help us, we pray, as we turn our thoughts to this little passage of Scripture. Make it live to us. Come and speak to us. Show us the relevance of this for our lives in the 21st century. And we pray that you will be our teacher. And we ask this in our Saviour's name. Amen. So during the course of the evening that Jesus spent with his disciples in that upper room commemorating the Passover, he turned to them at some point during the course of the evening and said, all of you, all of you will fall away on account of me um, this night. Peter, of course, protested that it simply might be true of others, but it was never going to be true of him. Maybe a word in season for some of the other disciples, but he was pretty sure that this didn't uh, apply to him. Even if everyone fell away on account of Jesus, he believed that he would remain true. Jesus took the conversation a bit further with Peter, and then he turned to Peter and he says, Listen, Peter, before 
the rooster crows, you will have denied me three times. And Peter again protested and responded, I'll go to prison for you. I'll die for you, he said to Jesus. And it seems at this point, he's not aware of his own weakness. And he's not aware of his own propensity to sin. He is completely bereft of any sense of humility. He had an air of self-confidence. I can do this. And that spelt disaster. The suggestion that he would fail, of course, was something that he was unprepared to entertain. But it was more relevant to him than he thought because he did fail. Before that evening was through, he would feel the darkness of failure envelop him like a blanket. Someone has paraphrased Proverbs 16:18 in these words, First pride, then the crash. First pride, then the crash. The bigger the ego, the harder the fall. And God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. And Peter was full of pride and self-confidence. Before Peter will become an effective fisher of men, the effective fisher of men that Jesus wants him to, to be, before Peter will be the winsome soul winner that he is being called to be, He will need to lose his sense of arrogance. He'll need to lose his sense of pride. He'll need to lose his self-confidence. And he will need to see that he is as dependent as everyone else on God's grace to stay afloat in the Christian life. So I've got two things that I want to try and pull out of this text that we've read, passage that we've read. I want you to think about the failure of Simon. And then secondly, for a few minutes, I want you to think about the compassion of Jesus. So those are the two things. The failure of uh, Simon Peter and the compassion of uh, Jesus. And there's a few things under those that I want to look at. So as we begin to look at the failure of Simon, how did he fail? First of all, I think he failed in regard to his prayerlessness. When they had finished commemorating the Passover, Jesus made his way out to the Mount of Olives uh, along with his um, disciples. And uh, at the base or the foot of the Mount of Olives there was a garden called the Garden of Gethsemane. And as they entered that garden, he asked his disciples to wait at the entrance. And he took uh, Peter, James and John and went a little bit further into the garden. And when he got to a secluded place in the garden with Peter, James and John, he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. My soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. Stay here, he said, and keep watch with me. Now, he had revealed at that moment his deepest emotions to them. And if ever there was a time when they should have felt compelled to do what he was asking them to do, surely it was then. They're with someone who's bearing his heart to them. He says, I'm feeling overwhelmed. To the point of death. Would you watch with me and pray for a little while? 
Jesus withdrew from those three disciples a little bit further into the garden and uh, he lay prostrate on the ground and began to pour his heart and soul out to his father. The horror of what was about to unfold, the horror of the cross was beginning to close in around Jesus. He was beginning to think about becoming sin for us and we have no idea what that meant for Jesus, the sinless one, to be made sin for us. And he began to cry, Father, if it's possible... For this cup, this bitter cup of your wrath, if it's possible for that cup to pass from me, um, then now is the time to let it pass from me. If if it's possible for people to be converted another way, for people to be redeemed another way, then reveal it now. Let's bring it to the fore now. If it's possible for them to be saved without me experiencing your wrath in their place, then then let it pass from me now. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done, he said. And Jesus did this not once, but on three separate occasions. He he came to his disciples and, and, and found them sleeping. And then he would retreat from them. He wakened them on one occasion. Then he would retreat from them. And he would just pour his heart out to his father. Isn't there another way? Isn't there another way? Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. If this is the way, then I'll submit to it. I'll, I'll do this. I'll go to the cross and bearing shame and scoffing rude in their place condemned I am prepared to stand and uh, but here's the thing that I want you to notice that when he came back to the disciples he found them sleeping sleeping he said to them watch and pray so that you don't fall into temptation your spirit is willing but your flesh is weak Jesus knows exactly what is ahead of Peter He knows that someone's going to say to Peter, aren't you one of that Galilean preacher's disciples? And he knows that Peter will face the temptation of denying Jesus, denying that he's a follower of Jesus. And he says to Peter, your flesh is, is, your, your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. Your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. Pray, watch and pray with me because um, you're going to fall into temptation. But the thing uh, that I want you to notice is that there's no indication that they prayed either with Jesus or in the absence of Jesus when he went a little bit further. So they've been told that they're all going to deny him uh, and fall away on account of him. They've been told that they're... that their spirit is willing, their flesh is weak. They've been told temptation is coming. Jesus has told them, I'm overwhelmed to the point of death. But still there is no prayerfulness. No, it's just prayerless. Now, I, I, I want to say to you about tiredness. Over the last number of years, I've really struggled with tiredness. And I know what it's like to be really tired in the evening really exhausted and you feel that you can hardly keep your eyes open I know what tiredness is like and I know that these men have had a long day and I I know that there's a lot on their plate and I I don't want to condemn them for, for being tired but if ever there was a night to pray this was the night to pray they're, they're facing danger they're staring danger in, in, in the face But they don't seem to have this desire to pray for themselves. 
And some of us are a bit like that, aren't we? We face the temptation of sin. And some of us know what it's like to face the temptation to sin. And there is a sense in which we're in a battle to survive, every single one of us. I don't know if you realize, but you've got an enemy, a spiritual enemy, who is absolutely hell-bent on your destruction, who wants to destroy your Christian testimony, and who wants to rob you of any sense of Christian vitality. You have an enemy who is opposed to you and against you at every turn. And in light of that, if there's one thing we should do, it's surely we should pray, God, I can't do this by myself. I'll never survive in the Christian life without your help. I'll never be able to withstand the temptations of the evil one. And I'm not talking about long hours of prayer. I'm I'm just talking about regularly crying out to God, help me, God, strengthen me, Lord. Help me in the face of this temptation. Is God the first first person that we run to we go to almost everybody else don't we and somehow mysteriously God is the last person that we go to could you help me in my marriage could you help me as I try to raise these children could you help me as I face the temptation of this sin and that sin could you help me at school as I as I struggle to take my stand for you Lord could you help me So I I want you to run to the Lord before you run to anyone else. Do the very thing that Peter fails to do in this passage. And pray, pray, talk to God. It's an amazing thing that I, I have this counselor who is always interested in listening to me. I never have to make an appointment to meet with him. I don't have to get through his secretary to talk to him. I can just go straight to God, wherever I am, whatever my circumstances. And he's listening to me, interested in what I have to say, and ready to respond. Isn't that miraculous? Well, here's the second thing. Not only is there prayerlessness, that's one of his failures. I think the second failure is his worldly perspective. Worldly perspective. He's out of tune, completely out of tune with God's way and with God's will. Now, that evening they're in the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane Gethsemane means um, wine press or oil press. Great name for a garden where Jesus felt the agonies of the cross close in around him because he was pressed from every side. Anyway, they're in this garden and uh, and uh, Peter wakens up and Jesus wakens him and says, let's go. Uh, my betrayer is at hand. The folks that have come to arrest me are here. And so he wakens Peter up and Peter wakens up with a startle, I, I'm sure. And uh, the next thing he, he notices that Jesus is interacting with Judas. And, uh, and then eventually Judas kisses him, the, the cold kiss of betrayal. And uh, he identifies Jesus to his, the mob that he has brought to the garden. And uh, Jesus says to them, who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. I am he, he says. And then they fall back as if, as if struck down by a supernatural power. Then at some point, shortly after that, Peter pulls out his sword and lunges at the high priest's servant lunges at him and cuts off his ear because he's not too great as far as aim goes with his sword cuts off the poor guy's ear 
probably instead of cutting off his head. And of course Jesus rebukes him. Jesus rebukes him. Put away your sword, Peter. Don't you think that that I could call 12 legions of angels? 6,000 soldiers in a Roman legion, 72,000 angels, 12 legions of angels. Don't you think that I could call 12 legions of angels to assist me, to aid me, to help me? Uh, And I, I would be prepared to wager that the angels were standing at the gates of heaven with their sword raised as that mob came to the garden waiting for the order to go and rescue Christ. And they could have rescued him. But Jesus asks Peter, how would the scriptures be fulfilled? How would the scriptures be fulfilled? Don't you remember that I told you on at least three separate occasions, the Son of Man must go up to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the chief priests and the elders, handed over to the Romans who would crucify him, and then he would be raised again on the third day. I've told you that again and again. The Son of Man came not to serve, but not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Peter, you are completely out of touch with what is unfolding here. Completely out of touch. The will of God is unfolding. This is the way that God the Father is taking me. I'm doing exactly what God wants me to do. And I'm going with these men to be um, falsely accused and then crucified. You're completely out of touch. And isn't it fair to say that, you know, uh, Peter, Peter, let's face it, Peter's as strong as an ox. Like, I used to go to the gym and, and uh, some of those guys I saw pumping weights, they're like little blobs of steel and with little sticks sticking out here and there for arms and legs. And Peter must have been a bit like that because he was a fisherman, throwing those huge nets out the back of the boat and hauling them in with his arms. Night after night, throwing them out, hauling them in. I mean, he must have had some upper body strength. And, and when the pressure's on, he resorts to the thing... That's natural for him. His own physical strength. I can do this. I can fix this. I've got the strength to take care of this. No, you haven't. You're completely out of step. Completely out of step. With with the scriptures. And and with the will of God. And I thought a little bit about that. And there's a, a multitude of ways in which we could take that. But, you know, sometimes people rub me up the wrong way. Sometimes people rub me up the wrong way. And I think, I'll fix you a couple of mouthfuls of cheek or some kind of sharp response. I could fix you. But I'm completely out of touch with the spirit of him who, when he was reviled, reviled not in return, but committed his cause to him who judges justly. You know, the truth is, we need to be more in step with heaven than we are. We need to depend less on our own resources, on our own thoughts, on our, on our own strength. We need to depend more and more on heaven to guide us, on this book that God has given to guide us. We want to walk in tune with heaven, not in tune with the world. We want a spiritual, heavenly perspective. Sometimes people used to say that people can be too, so heavenly minded that they are no earthly good. That's nonsense. The problem is we're not heavenly minded enough. That's why we're no earthly good. 
If we were more heavenly minded, we would be far more earthly good. So the second thing is that Peter is completely out of touch. Completely out of touch with the unfolding will of God. How often have I been out of sync with heaven? Out of sync with the clear principles of this book. The third thing is this. uh, I want you to think about his indecision. His indecision. Peter might have followed the crowd from the garden to the high priest's house at a distance. But the rest of them didn't follow at all. Just want you to notice that. Peter's following from the garden to the high priest's house at a distance. Watching Jesus, watching the mob. And, uh, but the rest of them didn't fall. They ran for their lives. They disappeared over the Mount of Olives back to Bethany where they'd been staying over the weekend with Jesus. It was only Peter that, that followed. Now, Peter's got a lot of flack about that. He followed from a distance. He followed from a distance. And that, some of that criticism is, is valid. But, you know, every Easter, every Easter we think about Mary Magdalene hanging around the tomb. She was there because she loved Jesus. She wanted to be close with Jesus. Now that Jesus was dead, she wanted to be close to the place where they had laid him to rest. And she was there. We often remind ourselves, every Easter, almost in every Easter sermon, we hear, she was there because she loved him. Well, Peter is following Jesus at a distance because he loves Jesus. Because he wants to see what's going to happen to Jesus. Because he can bear the thought of what they are doing to Jesus. That's why he is following. The rest of them have scampered like rats across a barn floor. But he's following because he loves Jesus. But the problem with Peter is he is living his life at a very dangerous place. Very dangerous place. He is trying to live somewhere between cowardice and courage. He wasn't sure how much he wanted to identify with Jesus. He wasn't sure if he was ready for the consequences of being known as a disciple of Jesus. He was in a place of indecision between cowardice and courage. He wasn't sure if he wanted to stand tall for Jesus or if he wanted to shy away from being identified with Jesus. And you can't live in no man's land. And you can't live with a foot in both You're either with Jesus or you're against him. You can't have one foot in the world and one foot in the church and one foot in the family of faith. You can't live there. It's impossible to live there. And Peter's going to find out that it's impossible to to live there. Sometimes we sing that song, don't we? Jesus, all for Jesus. That needs to be the cry of our hearts. Jesus, all for Jesus. All I am and have and ever hope to be. So... Uh, his indecision he's trying to live between cowardice and courage and he can't live there the last thing before we move on to Jesus' compassion is his denial his denial when he got to the high priest's home uh, Jesus was taken into the courtyard and probably into some of the inner rooms of the high priest's house to be interrogated Uh, Peter wouldn't have been able to get into the high priest's courtyard but John it seems has some kind of family connection to the high priest's family and somehow he has got in and somehow he gets Peter into the courtyard Um, Peter wants to go in because he wants to find out what are they going to do to Jesus 
And, uh, but he had a conversation of his own to worry about. Never mind what kind of conversation is going on between Jesus and the religious leaders. A girl saw him warming himself at the fire and she recognized him. Aren't you one of the Galilean preacher's disciples? I have no idea what you're talking about. A second uh, occasion unfolded. He withdrew to the gateway and another girl recognized him at the gateway. He wanted to be less conspicuous, but again he was recognized. I'm sure I saw you with Jesus of Nazareth, but he denied it. And this time with an oath and a curse. I swear to you, I don't know him. Then a group standing in the courtyard were sure that they had saw Peter with Jesus. And this time, denying all association with Jesus, Peter calls down curses from heaven and says, I don't know Jesus. And and, is that you, Peter? Is that you? I mean, we could understand if it was the rich young ruler. But is that you, Peter? Didn't you sit in in the upper room and say, I'll go to prison for you. I'll die for you. Didn't you say though everyone else denies you. I'll never deny you. Is that you Peter denying Jesus not once. But on three separate occasions. Before a little servant girl. Now I would want to argue that that in Peter's defense. He is not a pathetic disciple. This was the only disciple that was prepared to get out of the boat at the invitation of Jesus that night on the stormy lake of Galilee. This was someone that Jesus shared moments with that he didn't allow the other nine to share. This was the disciple that first proclaimed that Jesus was the Christ, the son of the living God. This is a great, great man of God, Peter. is a great man of God. But even great men can fall. Even great men can fall. In fact, the Bible warns us that if we think we stand, we should be really careful because we might just fall. And Peter failed miserably, disowned Jesus, blatantly lied about knowing Jesus. His courage was overcome by his cowardice. He denied Jesus. I wonder if you're struggling to really stand up and be counted for Jesus out there at school, at work, in your street, among your friends, in the local shop. Are you really struggling to stand up and be counted for Jesus? And is today the day when you should resolve in your heart, I'm not going to live between cowardice and courage any longer. I'm not going to follow at a distance any longer. I'm going to stand up and be counted for Jesus. You need to make that resolution in your heart. Well, here's the last thing. Uh, Jesus' compassion. We're told that that in, in Luke 22, verse 61, that when the rooster crowed, Peter looked at him. And I'll be very quick with this. We're told that when the rooster crowed, Jesus looked at Peter. Now... Jesus looked at him. You can communicate a lot in a look, can't you? My wife can communicate a lot in a look. She can look at me and I can almost read her mind. I know that I need to sit up a little straighter and start behaving myself. 
Jesus looks at Peter and I wondered what is communicated in that look. You ever think about that? What did Jesus communicate in that look? I think undoubtedly Jesus must have communicated disappointment. I think as Jesus looked at Peter, he must have communicated disappointment. You have denied all association with me. You lied about knowing me. You you have disappointed me, Peter. I told you in the upper room that Satan wanted to sift you as wheat. I, I told you that you would fall away. I asked you to pray. I told you that your spirit was willing but your flesh was weak. You never listened to any of that. You thought you could do it your way and look at the mess you made. No prayerfulness at any point. You never cried asking for help. You just went to sleep and look at the mess you've made. I think disappointment is, is what uh, Jesus must have communicated. And uh, I think that's why Peter went out and uh, wept bitterly. But you know, I think Jesus communicated more than disappointment in that look. As Jesus looked at him, he surely also communicated grace. Surely he also communicated grace. I I see grace in the eyes of Jesus. I hear grace in the voice of Jesus at every turn in the Gospels. I I see it in the eyes of Jesus as he goes home with lying, thieving tax collectors who have made a career out of ripping people off. Yet Jesus goes home with them and revolutionizes their lives. I hear it in the voice of Jesus as he engages with the woman who had been caught in adultery. As he sits down with the woman at the well and reaches into her sad life as though she really matters to him. I see grace in the voice of Jesus and hear it in the voice of Jesus every turn in the Gospels. And I think Jesus must have communicated grace to Peter. I think as he looked at Jesus he must have sensed This is not the end. This doesn't have to be the end. I don't have to take failure as final. There's forgiveness in that look. Surely he saw that there was forgiveness in that look. Surely in that look it was communicated where where sin abounds. Grace does much more abound. There is no pit so deep that his grace is not deeper still. Don't you think? Jesus looked at him. And then secondly, I want you to think about this, and we haven't read about this, but I want to jump uh, next time to Peter's restoration. But Jesus not only looked at him, but Jesus sent for him. Remember that group of women that went to the tomb on Easter Sunday morning? And they drew up close to the tomb, and Mary Magdalene took off like a rocket when she saw that the tombstone had been removed. But the rest of the women lingered there and, and went up and drew close and they saw an angel. An angel had, uh, was sitting there on one of the slabs and the angel said to him, said to the women, Go and tell his disciples that uh, he is going before them into Galilee and that he wants to meet them there. But that's not all the angel said. The angel said, And don't forget to tell Peter. Don't forget to tell Peter. Because people might think I've washed my hands of Peter, but I haven't. Peter might think, people might think that I'm done with Peter after his failure, but I'm not done with Peter. You make sure that you tell Peter, because I want to meet with Peter. 
as well as I want to meet with the rest of them. Jesus sent for Peter. He looked at him. He sent for him. And finally, he met with him. He met with him. We're told that in several places in the New Testament. On Easter Sunday, somewhere on Easter Sunday, Jesus met with Peter. So, two places that I'll mention. One is Luke 24, 33-34, Resurrection Sunday. Jesus walks with the two on the Emmaus Road. Remember that story? Walking on the Emmaus Road. And uh, he breaks bread to them when they get to the little village and they recognize it's Jesus. And immediately they run back to Jerusalem. And what do they find when they get back to Jerusalem? They find the twelve are believing. Why? They find that the other disciples believe in the resurrection. Why? Because Jesus has appeared to, to Cephas or to Peter. And one other verse is 1 Corinthians 15 verse 5. And Paul writing to the Corinthians on the topic of the resurrection says, He appeared to Cephas and to the twelve. For he appeared to Peter and to the twelve. So somewhere on Easter Sunday, Jesus not only looked at him not only sent for him, but met with him. And what a great meeting it must have been. Don't you think a great meeting? A meeting where Peter just said, I am sorry. I am such a failure. I thought that I could do that by myself. I, I thought that I would never succumb to the temptation to disown you. I thought I was Mr. Super Spiritual. I am really sorry that I'm such a miserable wretch. Would you forgive me? What a meeting it must have been. As Jesus assured him, I can forgive you, Peter. I forgave David all those years ago. I I can forgive you. I, I can restore you. I can recommission you. I can pick up the broken pieces of your life and put them together again and set you off in the right direction. Of course I can forgive you. What a blessed, sacred meeting that must have been as Jesus met with him and ministered to him and completely transformed him. There's something very, very, very honest about the Bible. You read some of the other holy books and uh, what you find is that they, they, they paint the picture of their key characters in glowing colors, never tell you about any of their faults. But the Bible doesn't do that. The Bible just tells the truth. It paints the picture warts and all. And uh, here we see one of the key characters of the Bible at a broken place, at a place of failure. But But you see that that Jesus is not content to leave him there. Jesus wants to pick him up out of his failure and set him going in the right direction again. Listen, I heard the story uh, of um, an old Puritan preacher and uh, his congregation, some members of his congregation didn't like him, were a bit dubious of him. So one day they came to ask him a series of theological questions to see if they could see if they could catch him out and they came to this man they said to him uh, so do you believe in the perseverance of the saints and he knew that he was being interrogated and he says no I don't believe in the perseverance of the saints ah they said we knew there was something dodgy about you and then he replied to them and says I believe in something far greater than the perseverance of the saints I believe in a persevering God. And here we see Jesus pursuing Peter 
drawing him back to the right way the way in which he should be going lifting him out of his brokenness and failure and setting him back uh, on, on the path again and I have found that in my life with the Lord when I wander to the left and to the right God pursues me and meets with me and brings me back again haven't you found that? And, uh, but I hope that you'll take the challenge of this away with you today we can't do it by ourselves we need to pray that God will help us to stand tall for him in a fairly hostile world God will give us the strength that we need to stand up and be counted for Jesus and thank you again for listening to me